morning. Welcome to Prairie Doc Radio. We have a special guest with us today. Dr. Kelly Evans is in studio. Rick happens to be out of town. And I know Dr. Evans has been on before. Some of you have heard her, but let's ask about her background a little bit so you can get to know her. So, Kelly, you grew up in Brookings. Yeah, I was born and raised in Brookings and graduated from SDSU and Um, After doing my training in Vermilion and Sioux Falls and then going to Denver for four years for my residency, we moved back a couple of years ago. So Great. Yeah. What was your undergraduate degree in? It was microbiology. Yeah, they didn't have, they now have sort of Mm pre-medical type degrees at SDSU. They didn't then. So I was a microbiology major, thought that I would love the lab and didn't and changed directions ultimately well but it gives you a roundabout way yeah it gives you great background Mm -hmm. and some of that micro that maybe all of us don't think about quite as much Mm -hmm. um when did you know that medicine was your area um you know honestly i graduated from college not knowing that Mm i i worked in an industrial lab here in town um for a year and just kind of realized that wasn't what was gonna get me ticking every day um and i waited tables at a couple places here in town over that couple of years after college realized that i really enjoyed talking to people getting to know people um and i thought that would be a nice fit and and here i am that's right And uh, your years in Denver, were those pretty fun? Did yeah. Did you get some skiing in? Yeah, you know, it's growing up in Brookings, I did not learn to ski as a young person. So that's one of those things that's not necessarily easy to take up in adulthood. Um, but we would ski a couple of times a year. I had a lot of co-workers who would ski a ton. I mean, in residency, you're working a lot of hours every week. And I still had uh, co-residents who got like a hundred ski days in a year, which is amazing. Wow, yeah. There's some real dedicated folks out there. They must have <laughs> skipped a little sleep for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Before we start a question, let's tell people what a general internist, what it means, mm-hmm. what you do. Yeah. So as a general internist, I think people are around here are most familiar with the family physician. Um, and a, a lot in a lot of ways, my job is not unlike that. I see patients mostly in the clinic every day, um, but I see only adults. So when I did my medical training, I saw only adults. I spent a lot of time in the hospital and taking care of quite sick patients in the ICU and, and, and other places. So I, I have a high level of comfort with complex illness, people with multiple, what what I would call comorbidities or different diseases and medication Mm -hmm. management of those things. So the elderly or the 50 and above Mm -hmm. are really, I I mean, not that younger people couldn't see you, Mm -hmm. but often as we do have more illnesses, then an internist becomes a little more valuable possibly. Uh, And of course, you can be called in if one of the family practice docs has questions that... Yeah. And I, from time to time, I will serve as a consultant, which is kind of a fun role to to other folks in the clinic who who maybe are encountering something that's unusual or highly complex. And Mm -hmm. I I don't necessarily know all the answers, but um, maybe have a little more comfort just because of my training background. Right. Right, right. Mm-hmm. that balancing act. Yeah, and that, yes, certainly that is a lot of what we do mm-hmm. is balancing the act. And that's what Rick would talk <laughs> about, particularly when patients came home from other facilities. Is mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, wait, mm, and I don't want to be negative, but sometimes if there's multiple specialists, then mm-hmm. no one's watching the patient 
all the details and so the yeah. internist has to you know just adjust meds and get all those electrolytes back to balance yeah and yeah and i day to day i find that very little is black and white in what i do as far as what would be the right or wrong answer and so um I spend a lot of time talking to patients about what their preferences might be and and how we can make the best decision which isn't always all that clear i think that that is something that um maybe part of our duty with this radio show is to help patients learn to think on their own and to question and to bring those questions up on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I work with children. The situations are different and, and, you know, sometimes they're very simple. But uh, for instance, a patient was talking about being on Miralax and they were told to take it every day, but it caused diarrhea, so they quit taking it. Miralax is a medication for constipation. So let's think about this. Mm-hmm. Could we go every other day? Right. Could we do every third day and try to get a balance? And sometimes I think that's missing. We're yeah. told one thing and it's we think we have to do it exactly. So yeah. encourage patients to think for themselves yeah. and think on their feet and yeah encourage um, that to be a conversation a two-way conversation between the party that's most affected which is the patient and the physician who is offering expertise and and trying to give the best advice possible right right okay well we need to go to our first break so let me remind people that this is prairie doc radio we are here to answer your questions our number is 692-1430 and we'll be right back This is Joni Holm. I'm filling in for Joan Hogan on Prairie Doc Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Kelly Evans. So we're going to start with a question that was sent in by a caller, and then we have some other topics that we want to get to, but this caller asked to please discuss different antibiotics and which are better and easier on the stomach. Mm-hmm. So that's a great question, and when it it's it's a broad question. So when it comes to what are the different antibiotics that exist, there are very, a lot of antibiotics impossible to cover in the show or probably in a several hour lecture. When we think about prescribing antibiotics, obviously the first question is, is this a condition that warrants antibiotics? That's question number one that we have to answer. Do we think that there's a bacterial infection that can be cured by an antibiotic? Question number two is what type of bacteria are most likely to be causing this infection? And that really depends on where the infection is. Is it in the ear? Is it in the sinuses? Is it in the lungs, the urinary tract? Different bacteria tend to cause different uh, types of infections. And so we have to have a base of knowledge that helps us make decisions based on that. So thereafter, that's what helps us sort of choose our antibiotics. There are a lot of guidelines that exist that can help us with this, but really what we're trying to do when we make an antibiotic choice is choose something that we think has high chance of covering the bacteria that would be causing the infection and as what we call narrow as possible, meaning you know we don't want to give the hard-hitting antibiotics that kill every bug if we don't have to um, for various reasons. So, so as narrow but targeted as possible. And then I think side effects certainly are something that we think about, but I think that's something that we think about after we figure out what our choices are. A lot of antibiotics are hard on the stomach. That's probably one of the most common side effects that we talk about. There are some that are probably easier on the stomach, things like maybe the the tetracyclines or doxycycline are ones that I think of that are often not so hard on the stomach. Um, But a a lot of our entire classes of medicines are and different patients have different levels of sensitivity to that for sure 
And I think talking with the pharmacist about when the best time to take it, is it with a meal, is it before meals, Mm -hmm. is it after meals, can be helpful to get the best efficacy of the drug, but also the least side effects of how it affects your stomach. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of patients who come in and they say they have an allergy to an antibiotic. Maybe they say they're allergic to amoxicillin. And if I dig further about what that allergy was, the answer is it made me nauseous or it gave me diarrhea. That is not a true allergy. Um, And I, I would keep that in mind as a patient just because if you have a strong indication for an antibiotic and penicillin is the best choice, we don't want to think that you have a severe allergic reaction when it's something that we could probably manage to get around if it's more of a stomach upset issue. Right. And it can be misleading on the chart. So mm-hmm. trying to, to make sure we know what it means. If it's deemed that it's an allergic reaction, you have trouble breathing. Yes, mm-hmm. we're going to put that on the chart and we're going to avoid mm-hmm. that. But you're right. It's, uh, it's best if we know as much about it as possible. You often hear patients say, uh, uh, I want a stronger antibiotic. And it that's a little bit of a misnomer too, in that it's- Right, yes. Which all antibiotics are designed to kill bacteria. Um, so there's not necessarily stronger, weaker. There are ones that cover broader classes of antibiotics. But again, those aren't always necessarily good because we don't want to have a patient develop resistance to those hard hitting antibiotics. Um, and they tend to ha- have more side effects too. Right, and this speaks to the not treating the the upper respiratory cold Mm -hmm. because as much as you want it, folks, it isn't going to help and it's going to cause problems. Yeah, yeah, yep. It may just cause the stomach upset, diarrhea, all the things that can go along with antibiotics and not likely to cure your viral infection um, and, you know, possibly lead to uh, resistant bacteria right. developing. Right. So that is a little nutshell of why antibiotics are not just freely given out. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's do one more question before we take a second break. Um, We are still seeing influenza in the community. Mm -hmm. Any any thoughts or any discussion on that? And another question that came up this morning when I asked friends is the intranasal vaccine that used to be on the market. Mm -hmm. Is there any news about that coming back on the market? I have heard that it's likely to come back on the market. From what I understand, it was found to not be efficacious in a, a season past, and that's why it was removed. And the manufacturer has fixed the problem that was with absorption. So I think that will be available maybe next year. Um, Personally, I I got the flu mist once and it caused such side effects of cold-like symptoms that I've kind of decided I'm going to take the shot every time. But there are people that that can be helpful for for various reasons and it's nice to have that choice. I think it will be back, if not next year, the year after from what I have heard and read mm-hmm. and you're still seeing influenza here yeah in the we are still i feel like i'm seeing less cases of it these last couple of weeks compared to G- january when it was i mean a couple patients a day mm-hmm. uh it's interesting the the testing kits have been on national back order so our clinic was without kits for a while i think the hospital is now without testing kits um which means we kind of just have to make clinical decisions, which in most cases is fine, honestly. I think it'll be interesting to see how skewed the public health data will be because most of that includes only lab-confirmed influenza. And I mean, I've told a lot of people just in my own practice that they have influenza when I wasn't able to test for it. Right. I Mm. think all of us are. And when you see the symptoms with the high fever and the listlessness, Mm. 
Uh, if it's a healthy person, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. I, I am finding that I'm testing babies if we're suspicious because then we might be able to use the Tamiflu. Right. And in your case, probably the elderly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In some cases, it's it's helpful to do that. In a lot of cases, it'd be kind of nice to know for sure because I give people stricter return to work precautions mm-hmm. to make sure they're not spreading it around the community. But we've kind of done our best with what we've had. And in most cases, that's fine. Like I said, it's a, it, it's a pretty easy clinical diet diagnosis to make the majority mm-hmm. of the time most of the time folks we want you to stay home if if you have the symptoms the high fever the cough the runny nose the body aches the listlessness mm-hmm. and we're talking four or five days depending yeah. on your symptoms so yeah. especially you know our school age let's not go back and spread it more if yeah. you can help it so we need to take a second break i'll remind you that this is prairie doc radio and our phone number is 692-1430 we'll be right back Hi, this is Joni Holm filling in for Joan Hogan, and this is Prairie Doc Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Kelly Evans. We have some other questions, so let's talk about the hepatitis C virus. Yeah. And the question in particular is, who is at risk and who should get tested for the... Uh, for the virus. Yeah, so um, hepatitis C is a, a virus that when it exists in someone's body tends to live there without causing symptoms for decades. Um, and in, in a certain percentage of people actually clear the virus about 30%. And then a certain percentage of people just live with the virus. It doesn't cause them problems for their whole lives. But about a third of the people who ever get the virus can develop cirrhosis of the liver, high risk for liver cancer, and all the problems that go along with it. This can be lethal. Um, So uh, hepatitis C, the most recent recommendations and maybe where this question came from is that we do test people who traditionally would be thought to be low risk. So people that we know are at risk for hep C are people who are injection drug users, some really high risk sexual practices. If you had a blood transfusion before 1990 something, I believe we didn't discover the hep C virus until 1991, I don't think. So we certainly weren't testing for it in the blood supply before then. More recently, though, it's sort of the, quote, baby boomer age group has been targeted as a population that should be screened once with a blood test. Those born between 1945 and 1965. The rates of hep C have found to be quite high in that group, four times as high as the general population, and not for any reason in particular. So we're, we find this virus occasionally in people who never had um, or certainly never report any of those high-risk practices. And it probably has to do with the fact that that virus existed for a while, a decade mm-hmm. or two before we knew about it, before we knew that we needed to sterilize things for viral disease, which is something that was a new discovery in the 80s with he- HIV and hep C. So it's a one-time blood test. Essentially, if you, it's an antibody test. So we test you. If you have the antibody, there's a chance that you still don't have the virus. Like I said, 30% of the people who had it cleared it. So th- if you have a positive test, there's a second testing step. The other reason we're pushing for one-time testing in this age group is that we suddenly have have much better treatments for hepatitis C than we've ever had before. Old treatments, interferon, were highly toxic. It essentially made people feel like they had influenza for a, a, a six months or a year, however oh. long they were on it. No fun. No, no fun at all. And not highly efficacious. So a lot of people still didn't have cured disease. Now we have pills that have a lot lower rates of severe side effects and are highly effective. So that baby boomer group is sort of the, the newer group mm-hmm. to, to the 
H- HCV screening recommendations, but talk talk about it with your doctor. Because it's a CDC recommendation, it should be fully covered by any insurance plan. I think that's important to know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, personally, I lived in Atlanta, CDC's in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I put them up at the top of the gurus, mm-hmm. and I, I think most professionals yeah. do. And their recommendations come well-studied and uh, reviewed. Mm-hmm. Okay, while we're talking about uh, viruses, what about shingles? Mm-hmm. What is it? And I, there is a new vaccine out. If we can talk a little bit about that new, new vaccine and who should be looking into it and talking to their doctor about it. Yeah, so so shingles, I feel like probably a lot of our listeners, if you haven't had it, you know someone who's had it. It's a pretty uncomfortable thing to have. It can happen to anyone who had chicken pox as a child. So that virus goes dormant in one of the nerves near your spinal cord and if it reactivates which it it usually does so randomly we say it happens when people are immunosuppressed but most cases i see have no particular reason Mm -hmm. it activates and causes a very painful crusting rash in the area where that spinal nerve goes so people might have it around one half of their torso or one leg or one side of their face um very painful usually lasts a week or maybe two a lot of people that's all it is but it is very painful while it happens but a small percentage of people will get what we call post herpetic neuralgia which is a chronic pain in that nerve and that is a really bummer of a deal um it's it's painful it's hard to treat with medications without side effects and it happens in older people who are more prone to any medication side effects so that's that's the big thing that i would say we're trying to prevent with vaccination i talked with a a gentleman that i knew and he got shingles on his scalp and face and uh, you know i was asking him about the pain and how he dealt with it and he said i would try to hold still and not think like oh my gosh that Mm. was very painful for him yeah and that's something we definitely want to avoid if we can so what about the the current shingles vaccine and then the new one yeah so um the older vaccine called the zostavax which has been around for maybe 10 years is what has been recommended for people over 50. the problem with that is that as people get older the efficacy of that vaccine, which is kind of a complex statistical term, but anyway, it wanes over time. So I think I read in folks over 70, the efficacy was only between 30 and 40%. Mm. So we saw a lot of cases of shingles in people who had gotten the vaccination. But we thought maybe it was better than nothing, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's a little bit of a harder cost benefit analysis when the numbers are that low. The newer um, vaccine called the Shingrix, this is a vaccine that, again, CDC is recommending for adults over 50. You'd get one vac, you get two doses. The old one was only one dose. You get one today and one in two to six months is the recommendation. Um, Efficacy is much higher. So it's over 90% and it remains that way regardless of age. So even in over 71, the efficacy is 91%, which is a a really good vaccine efficacy rate across the board. And then, you know, the big thing that we're trying to prevent that post-herpetic neuralgia, it's pretty equally efficacious in preventing that compared to people who do not get vaccinated. So if someone has had the traditional shingles mm-hmm. vaccine, should they get the new one as well? Yeah. So, th- you know, this is new enough that I recommendations are still catching up, but I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't, what I don't know is whether insurers are sort of catching up to payment or like if you got the Zostavax six months ago, would they pay for the Shingrix this year? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's going to be variable and something that 
you should check on and as an individual. Insurance coverage was never that great um, across the board for either of these shingles vaccines. So it's pretty common to see patients have to pay out of pocket for this. So it's something that's worth checking on. Which, you know, it is really contra in my mind. Yeah. Why it's something that we know works. Mm -hmm especially this new one if it isn't covered boy i yeah. would I, I don't know the cost but i would almost say it's worth I getting agree. and get out of pocket i mean a lot of times we spend money on right and goofy things spending on your health yeah and if if these recommendations become more strong it may be required to be fully co covered in the future but i i think we're it's going to take a year or two for everything to sort of catch up with this newer vaccine mm -hmm. i know we're, we are not carrying it now in our clinic the pharmacies around town are carrying it so it's it's out there and it's available that, I think it sounds very, very important. So talk with your primary care provider mm -hmm. about the new Shingrix. Now let's take our last break and then we'll come back for further questions, 692-1430. Thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. This is Joni Holm. I'm filling in for Joan Hogan and Kelly Evans is here today in place of Rick. Um, we're going to stick with our vaccine discussion and talk about the pneumonia vaccine. And I know mm -hmm. there's some controversy on how often and do, do, do you repeat it. So give us mm -hmm. a little update on that. Yeah. So, I mean, and part of that confusion has stemmed from the fact that our recommendations have, have actually changed recently and, you know, several times in the last five or 10 years. The most recent um, infectious disease recommendations are that, and this is for people who are of normal health that don't have, you know, chronic lung conditions and stuff like that. Um, I know in pediatrics, you give one of the pneumonia vaccines, right? right? So there's there's two of them out mm -hmm. there. The Prevnar is the brand name, or P PCV13, and the um, Pneumovax is the other brand name, PPSV23. Um, so in, in adult medicine, across the board, we recommend that people at age 65 get the Prevnar um, first, and then get a booster one year later with the Pneumovax. Vax, um, and that's based on you know a conglomerate of data. So that's the up-to-date recommendations, one of each a year apart. Now there are some people who, because they have asthma or because they have an immunodeficiency or some other chronic condition, may have gotten the pneumovax before age 65. And for those folks, we kind of do the same thing at age 65, assuming it's been more mm -hmm. than a, a year since the last one. Um, so th that gets a little more complex, but across the board at 65, one at age 65 one at age 66. If you're 75 and have never had one, then we would just start you like you were 65 and, and recommend it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is it pretty uh, efficient in preventing pneumonia? Yeah. So um, we just talked about a really highly efficacious vaccine that knew Shingrix over 90%. The numbers are not that good. But what I would say about um, this bacterial disease that it's trying to prevent is unlike shingles, this is something that kills people not uncommonly. So this is, a, this is trying to prevent a severe disease that can cause pneumonia. It can cause meningitis. It can cause sepsis and death. So uh, I'm willing to accept a little bit lower efficacy rates mm -hmm. to try and prevent a disease like that. It's still fairly high and these vaccines are extremely safe. So I think there's a lot of questions uh, that people have about pneumonia in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I work with children. Children bounce back so well. Mm -hmm. I, they can have pneumonia and go home on an antibiotic, whereas mm -hmm. an adult, 
it's a lot dicier. Mm -hmm. So explain a little bit of uh, what it is, how people are affected, what they should be cautious and watching for. Mm -hmm. So pneumonia is is sort of a clinical syndrome in which people get, and, and pneumonia technically can be caused by bacteria, viruses, it can have a lot of causes, but it's when you have what we call a lower respiratory tract infection, the actual lungs are infected as opposed to like the upper airways. Symptoms are cough, which is usually productive of sputum, uh, fevers, and people get sort of generally quite sick. People may be short of breath, their oxygen levels may drop. This is one of the most common things that we see um, older patients get hospitalized for would be mm -hmm. pneumonia. Um, and, and sometimes in pneumonia, it's harder to actually figure out what the cause is than it is in other infections. It's hard to grow bacteria out of the lungs, if you can imagine that. Um, so we kind of, we treat based on exam qualities. Chest x-ray is very helpful. Um, lab work is very helpful for the diagnosis. And is often quite treatable depending mm -hmm. on, you know, the person's general condition and if antibiotics are started yeah. rapidly, if it is a bacterial versus a viral. Now, viral, our pneumonias can kill mm -hmm. people also, and yep. we don't have a treatment except for supportive. Right. So it, it, it's tricky, and we want you to, if you have symptoms, to go in and be checked. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about a pneumonia after influenza. Yep. If your influenza is getting better, and all of a sudden, wow, that fever's back, you're feeling crummy. Yeah. Time to go in. Yeah, and I tell people all the time, there's no substitute to me listening to your lungs. Sometimes people have a cough. They don't know if it's just a cold or a really bad cold mm -hmm. or if there's something more going on. The answer is we can't, you know, sometimes just listening to the lungs is all it takes for us to help differentiate those things. Do you find that listening to the lungs and uh, looking at that pulse ox match pretty well when it's it drops yeah i I, th I think it's uncommon to see a huge discrepancy between exam and some of those things mm -hmm. and it certainly can happen but the, it's all those things in combination that help us to come up with a diagnosis so that's mm -hmm. the the finger test that we're talking about when we look at your oxygen level mm -hmm. and so that is something that helps along with the lab work and the x-ray and mm -hmm. So if uh, folks, we're running out of time. We sure appreciate everybody listening. Uh, take care of your health and get in and get tested and get your vaccines. What would you like to add for a final comment? Yeah, so I would say, you know, when, if it, when it comes to infection, see your doctor if you're worried about something more than just the average cold. Like I said, there's no substitute for being evaluated. Uh, and lastly, I guess, happy birthday, Joni. I didn't even well, realize I was going to be sitting here with the birthday girl. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, we will stay tuned uh, for, we have Prairie Doc Rate uh, TV tomorrow night. <laughs> um, but it is at 7 o'clock on public TV, so please join us for that. And then there will be a week off after that because of basketball, girls and boys basketball, I believe. So, uh, folks, uh, stay healthy, get your vaccines, and we'll see you next week.